You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Nigel Green. He is a leading authority on how to build high-performance sales teams. We're going to talk to him a little bit about how service-based businesses can really approach sales strategically, how they build sales capabilities, what goes into that, how do they build out teams, really how do they approach sales when you're looking to grow and scale. I think it's one of the biggest challenges in service-based businesses is figuring out how to create a consistent, steady, repeatable sales process. I think if, if, if companies can do that, but a lot of other things become much easier. But obviously, you know, it's, it's a key part of really scaling any business, but certainly for service-based businesses. Nigel's also an author, so Revenue Harvest. I'm sure we're going to talk about some of the information that's contained in there and really just have an interesting conversation about what people can do, how you approach sales, how do you approach sales strategically, uh, and really make it something that is going to help drive your business. So with that, Nigel, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Bruce. This is probably long overdue. Yeah, it is. I know. We've, we spoke a while ago and, and had a really good conversation. And I'm just fascinated about the work you do and your experience. And I think sales is is one of the hardest things to really get right in any business, but certainly services, just because you are you don't have a physical product you can kind of put in front of people that they can touch and feel. It's just such a different beast in terms of being able to sell this stuff. So before we dive into you know how to build sales teams, so let's learn a little bit more about you and background. Tell us the story. Tell us the journey that you've been on to get you where you are today? Well, you know, I think that I'm here today because it chose me. I, I didn't choose it. I don't think anyone goes into the career of this and saying, you know, I just want to teach people how to build sales teams. That's, <laughs> you, I didn't wake up wanting to do that. So yeah, I'm in a, kindergarten, you weren't like, yeah. I want to be a fireman or a sales professional. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. That's what I wanted to be. Yeah, and interesting. Uh, then that was, uh, I was a, a football player. I grew up in Alabama. So you play football. That's just what you do. And uh, I was pretty good at it, but probably not good enough to go play at the level of, of football that I wanted to play. And I wanted to go be yeah. a fighter pilot in the military, which so it took me to visiting all the military academies. It didn't work out. And so I ended up playing football at a small liberal arts college in Tennessee mm-hmm. and uh, studied geology because it was a way to be outside. It just... Geology forced me to think using the scientific method, and uh, that got me into sales. And yeah. which people don't understand, how do you go from science to selling is just really boring, basic, unsexy math equations. That's really all. <laughs> that's all it is. And uh, but if you can couple that with you know a competitive drive and insatiable curiosity, you're going to be you're going to be good at it. So I was good at sales, but I was even better at uh, the science piece of making it predictable. Okay, so there's you know there's this 
probably misperception about salespeople that it's more art and they've got this like inherent ability. I don't think any of that's true. I mean, the research shows that there's probably no pattern to type of degree, where you went to school yeah. uh, that's going to make you successful. The things that make people successful in sales is um, relentless energy and insatiable curiosity. I had both of those uh, and then quickly learned that I was better at building the team than actually closing the deal. And so I did that for a while, yeah. spent about 10 years building sales teams and uh, kind of outgrew it. Got to a place where I wanted to be able to teach multiple companies how to build sales teams versus just building them on my own. And that's where I am today. I work with investors, executives, and sales leaders of quickly scaling businesses, mostly service businesses, on what does it look like to build a team that's built to last. Yeah. And I love the kind of science approach to that, you know, coming out of architecture and engineering and computer software myself. I, and anytime we can turn something into a process, into a system, you know, that we can define and that we can repeat and we can train on, then we're talking scalability because, you know, it's tough to scale something that you don't understand how it works. And so I, I love this kind of approach that you're taking or kind of your, your approach to sales and looking at it as a system and looking at it as a process. In terms of the types of sales teams, types of companies, just give us a sense of, kind of the range or the the flavor of situations you've been in, where you've built sales teams, what kind of some of the similarities and differences between them are? Yeah. So as a sales leader, I was in charge of $50 million in revenue. So I had a team of roughly 60 reps across the country in different roles and different capacities. And I hope we get to talking about that at some point. And so that was kind of the upper threshold, $50 million in revenue down to now I sit on the board of four earlier stage companies that are in the single digit millions of revenue with, with a couple that are doing $10, $15 million in revenue a year. Yeah. No, it makes it, and I, I define that just the kind of the approach to sales and even just kind of the strategy to sales changes so much as the company size changes. I find, you know, most service-based businesses in the beginning, it's the founder, CEO, who's really kind of driving sales through networking and relationships. But at some point that kind of taps out and you've got to take a different strategy. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what needs to happen differently in a company when you start thinking strategically about sales as opposed to just, you know, finding a rainmaker, you know, one person in the company who's kind of making it happen. And when the company kind of taps out, it just like you hit a growth ceiling because of that setup, what do you need to start changing or what's the, what are the things that needs to start happening inside the company to evolve it? Yeah. So I think where you're taking this conversation is that whilst the notion of scaling revenue and scaling your sales could be infinite, processes and people are not very scalable. So there comes a time where you're going to reach the capacity of a structure, the capacity of a person, and the capacity of the process. And in order to scale beyond that, sometimes you have to blow it up. And that's the problem that a lot of service-based businesses get into is they want infinite scale, but somehow the structure, the system, and the people that got them to where they are today that scaled them to the current structure won't get them where they need to go. There really are only three ways that you can improve sales. One is raise your price. That's the easiest (laughs) way to do it. And that has limits to scale. There's only Mm -hmm. so much you can raise the price until the market pushes back. Second way 
ways you can go get more customers. Well, there's a finite number of customers out there. It may be seemingly infinite, but mm-hmm. there is a total addressable market. And then the last is uh, you've got to sell the customers you have something else. So you scale by offering them something different. And I think that's probably the most neglected lever that service businesses have. They focus on price. They focus on acquiring new customers. And oftentimes they neglect to keep the customers they have. So they have a churn problem or they underexploit or totally neglect the ability to go back to the customers that are happy with the service you provide and say, what else can we do for you? Yeah. And I like that strategy because it's um, it's kind of low hanging fruit, right? I mean, you already have a relationship with these folks. They're already doing business with you. They're already buying things from you. You probably have some insights into what else is going on in their business, what other pain points they have. And to, and to look at that and say, hey, look, we can easily add this capability, add the service to what we're doing right now to solve these other things. It's a great way to grow your business. What are some of the things that get in the way of folks or why don't folks take advantage of that more often, would you say? Yeah. When we say folks, I want to be clear about that. The folks are the executive, the founder, the head of the business doesn't scale the people and the structure with the business goal. So very quickly in your mind, Mr. and Ms. CEO, you want to go from 6 million to 12 million, but you've got a sales team that's responsible for getting new business, mm-hmm. managing existing accounts, and keeping them happy so they don't leave. So whether you know it or not, you have put some capitative restraints to your structure because at some point you can't have one person do all three of those things. So we have to evolve our people strategy to say, we've got to take our sales process and divide it into in half or into thirds, but create different stages within the process of how a customer goes from unaware of your business to successfully utilizing it and post-purchase. Your team has to create specialization and own different stages of that funnel in order to go from $6 million to 30 or even $15 million in revenue. Yeah. So you bring up an interesting point, which is I always find that companies to do service companies when they when they kind of think about okay how are we gonna you know we're at five million how do we get a ten million or how do we go to twenty five million there's kind of these two fundamental paths they can go down they can either kind of create practice leaders or business leaders that have a book of business and kind of have their own teams or you know maybe they use some shared resources but they basically are out there generating leads selling leads managing accounts but they have their kind of book of accounts and the next leader has theirs and it's kind of I'll call it the fiefdom methodology and maybe. I- Maybe I'm tipping my hand in terms of what I think about it. And then there's kind of this more process approach, which is saying, hey, look, if if we're really going to grow the capacity of the organization, we really need to kind of define these different steps. And we need to have people who are going to generate leads and people that are going to help sell, people that are going to onboard, people that are going to service the account, people that are going to expand the accounts. I mean, it feels like my kind of uh, opinion has been that there's these two fundamental ways. It sounds like you are kind of leaning towards the process and create specialties and, and create people who can do those different stages really, really well and then integrate them through process. I tend to agree, but I'm curious on your thinking about that, if that's always the case, if that when that works, when that doesn't work, what's your take on that kind of those, if we break sales growth into two, those two strategies, give me some feedback. Well, I don't know that it's always the case. I would argue that it is the most effective and fastest path. I mean, there's always the solution of, well, just hire more people and have them do the same thing. Well, inevitably that increases the cost of sale that you're limited 
limited by the competencies and capabilities of the people that you have because a generalist, it's like if you want to do three things, don't expect to do any of them very well. Uh, (laughs) That's where the notion of specialist comes into play. So if you want to scale faster and smarter and maintain a palatable cost of sale, you'd be wise to start thinking about the stages in your customer journey and start creating specialization within that. So for example, having a team of sellers that only focus on taking unaware buyers to aware and interested, and then a team of sellers that take interested buyers through the evaluation process and discovery down to I'm ready to buy and get the business closed. And then a separate team that really focuses on success, of the offering, retention, and renewals. When you can have that level of specialization within your team, then you can start aligning the performance indicators of the team and the individuals with the goals of the business. For example, we want to keep churn less than 10%. Okay, well then let's start scorecarding that team that's responsible for churn to that metric. Okay, we want to convert X percent of opportunities into new business this year. Okay, well then let's align those KPIs with the business goal. And we need X new number of accounts of new logos, of de novo opportunity. Well, then you got a team that focuses on that. Do you, and do you find that the, like how you define that process and where you make those breakpoints and kind of, you know, defining the stages that we're going to use in, within a company, is that a standard sort of universal playbook or is that really dependent on the nature of the company and, and what they sell and how they sell it? Well, I've found that it's rare that the management team takes planning to the level of nuance that's required to be successful. So I find that most business plans are a number that's backed by hope and not very (laughs) much uh, real tangible steps. So I think that, yes, it's okay to take your annual sales goal and assign it into quarters and then assign it to products. But where most plans fall short is they don't assign the goals down to specific accounts and expect not plan for, but expect some level of adversity. You're going to have good people leave. You're going to have good accounts leave. And there's no planning for what I call expected adversity. Nobody plans for that. And so what ends up happening is at some point in the year, at some highly inconvenient time, adversity happens. (laughs) (laughs) And, oh, we didn't think about it. Yeah. Yeah, It's kind of that rule of you may not know exactly what happens, but you know something will happen. And so, well, you you know, you may not be able to predict this specific event. Knowing that things happen, right? Kind of the rule of business and having a strategy and having kind of plans in place to say, okay, this is what we're going to do when we see a downturn or when we have a hiccup or when we see, you know, something shift in the market. Sorry, I want to add this. I think that where the the mental block for a lot of founders is that they already know that the plan itself is useless and they get caught into that, but they can't bridge the gap between, yes, the plan is useless, but planning itself is indispensable. Mm. Yeah. There's no substitute for doing the work to think about contingencies, to expect what could go wrong, will go wrong, and having your business ready to to deal with it. And, and so how do we create that plan? I mean, what what's the process or what are the steps, you know, what goes into making a good strategic selling plan? I think so. The one thing, if there's one thing that you do to improve your planning, take all your goals and you have to assign them to logos. Whether you work with them now or not, 
you have to think mm-hmm. and, and you can even have them be hypothetical, but you can you want to certainly assign the plan to existing accounts. Mm-hmm. And then there's probably 50 to 100 accounts that collectively you and your sales team could put together without doing any research that you would love to do business with. Yeah. You got you got a plan that you're going to close a certain number of those. The other thing that um, and this is probably why most plans fail. Really good plans don't get positioned very well with the team so that we don't do the work of communicating why this is the plan. It just lives in our head or it lives mm-hmm. in a PowerPoint yeah. deck that we never share with the sales team. So there's no attachment of what's in it for them and what's in it for some of these customers if the plan is successful. So it's not enough to, to go through the detailed nuances of assigning it to the account level. If we don't do the work of positioning in it well, then it's not going to matter how good the plan is. And that's really just kind of communicating out to folks, explaining the why behind it, the thinking, the rationale, so that people have, you know, under, understand, you know, what, what, what these targets mean or how these targets were created rather than just kind of dumping a set of KPIs or a set of, you know, monthly or quarterly goals on, onto a sales team. I think it's equally important that they understand the why, but also that they are accountable for the end result. So I think if if you don't do the work of getting them bought in and being self-accountable that I own this piece of the plan, it doesn't, even if they understand the why, if if they are not willing to hold themselves accountable to the plan, it won't matter. And is that about getting the right people on the team? Is that the right process? Is that the right leadership? I mean, what what drives accountability in that way from your point of view? Well, it does start with getting the right people. So you have to have people that are self-accountable. And they say, well, what does that look like? Well, I like to hire people that hold themselves to a standard that's so high, even when they miss it, I never know. Okay, mm, so like they, they just have this standard for themselves that um, is unrivaled. I can't match it for them. Then it's my responsibility because I, I think about the next thing. Well, how do you motivate people? It's not my job to motivate people. It's just not. It's their job to be motivated. Mm. It's my job to create a motivating environment. It's my job to attach, to understand what their personal goals and aspirations are and attach them to things that I need done in the year. I like that. that The whole idea of your job is not to motivate them, (laughs) but to to create a context that is motivating. And what what goes into that As as a leader, as a sales leader, or as a business leader, how do you create a context that helps them find and develop their own intrinsic motivation around these things rather than you know external forces that you have to put in place to, to get things to happen? Well, it starts with understanding why they came to work with you. What is it about this opportunity that gets them somewhere else in life? You know, it, yeah. it's... We go into this thinking that, well, they just want to work here. Well, they want to work here because dot, dot, dot. They plan to leave at some point. Good people plan to leave. And it's our job to help get them there, use them up while they're here, but prepare them for that next thing. And so if we can do that in the interview process, if we can figure out what does this career mean what does this career opportunity, this one stop, whether it be two to five years, what does it mean for their overall career map? And and I've got to start aligning things that I need them done here with what they need done. And if you can do that, if you can anchor everything that you're asking them to do with what they stated was in it for them, it's really easy to get people to do what you want. Yeah. It almost sounds 
like a strategy for how you sell customers. <laughs> you know, like understanding what they want, understanding what the needs are, how can you fit that plan, how can you help them achieve their goals. Uh, well, it, it's no different. In fact, yeah. I was just writing a um, a compensation playbook for one of my clients, and it was specifically for the sales development role, which is that top of the funnel role. Mm-hmm. And their customer is the account executive. It's not yeah. the logos. Their job is to have happy account executives. So yeah. I think about my customer, which is a sales leader, their job is to have happy salespeople. That's your customer. If you take care of your people, they will take care of your customers. And I'm just not talking about you know having the most rich incentive compensation plan in the market. In fact, we yeah. there's research that shows that comp plan is really about fourth on the list of what motivates people. So mm-hmm. it's building out this entire ecosystem where they feel nurtured and tended to that fosters the scale that you need to get where you want to go in the next few years. Yeah. And how any insights or suggestions for folks on the kind of where to find talent, how to recruit, how to interview, how do you do that? Yeah. So that's a really good question. Here's what I like to say about salespeople. And this is an exception and I don't want to talk about COVID, but I do want to put an asterisk by this comment because the number one rule that I have for sales leaders is that good salespeople are not looking for a job. So if they're applying to your post, your job post on LinkedIn or Indeed, Mm -hmm. they're out of work. If they're out of work, most of the time, it's because they failed to hit a number. Now, again, the big caveat here, the asterisk is that this is an unusual time where there are really good people that are out of work of no consequence of their own. But when things get back to normal, Mm -hmm. good salespeople are busy smashing their quota and not looking for a job. So that's when you have to go and recruit. And I think that you have to go look at the companies that have the culture and the talent that you want, and you have to figure out a way to uh, to go and grab their top performers and entice them to come do it with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always a there's always an angle I find, you know, and there's there's some there's always something inside their current situation that isn't perfect, and if you can find a way to to address that better, you know, you can usually find a, a couple of really good people. And yeah, I agree that with the asterisk of COVID being it is somewhat a unique situation, there are really good people in the market. Yeah, I'd much rather you know, find someone who's really successful in a company right now and, and figure out if I can recruit them in than trying to, you know, sort through resumes that's getting submitted through Indeed. So the soundbite for this whole concept is the best talent is found then trained. Mm. That's, you shouldn't have to train anyone on how to sell. Never. Yeah. Okay, so we're not moving assistants into sales role. We're not taking somebody from the product team. No, no, no. We're going to go find competent professional sellers that have a resume and references that support their success. And then we train them on our business because the right person that you want is going to be a self-starter and they're going to go do what it takes. They're going to learn the product. They're going to learn the market on their own and and selling is something they just already know how to do. Yeah. In terms of kind of designing the process, and you know, we kind of spoke about the beginning, you know, really finding these stages, you know, clarifying it, understanding what the steps are. What's the best way to actually start doing that? So if you're someone listening here, they're a service-based business, they're looking at the sales process, looking at sales strategy, how they're going to grow the business. How do you kind of suggest they sit down to start to map out like what is our sales process or what should it be, you know, if we're going to make this repeatable and scalable? Well, you got to audit recently closed business. And I think you can do it with a sample size of somewhere around 50. You want to know, take your last 50 deals. Uh-huh. 
Where do we get them? So first of all, was it inbound, outbound? Okay. okay. If it was yep. inbound, what was the traffic source? Okay. Mm-hmm. How did the customer make a decision to buy? So how many times did we have to engage with them? Was it Zoom? Was it in person? How much back and forth on the contract did we do? Did they onboard themselves? Do we have a buy now button on the website? That's how we get our business. Or if it's outbound, who did it? What were the number of activities? You, you just got to go back and look at your last 50 deals and find the patterns in types, frequency, and lengths of engagement. And somewhere in there, you're going to, one, you're going to find opportunities to do it better. You're going to find holes in your funnel where things fall through. Yeah. And then you're going to develop patterns and you're going to be able to start assigning uh, certain activities to different stages on a buyer's intent. So for example, if we do a 30-minute demo, well, they are interested that this is interested in evaluation. So you want to begin to start putting some strategic in your sales funnel and assigning the different stages to buyer intent. And then when you do that, you'll begin to see where you tend to lose interest or churn through opportunities. And a lot of that is very controllable. Yeah. It's kind of a leaky bucket. I mean, you're kind of (laughs) making sure that you're plugging the holes, you know, areas where things tend to fall out or you tend to waste time or energy. uh, Yeah. If more companies would focus on fixing the holes in their bucket versus putting more water in it, their life would be a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah, it's much easier to fix holes than to go find new water. And in terms of sort of common mistakes, I mean, if you think through professional services, common strategies or common ways that companies generate leads or develop, you know, develop a lead into a, a sales opportunity, anything you've noticed or, or anything that are kind of good strategies to consider or to look at if you're in a service-based business looking to update or change your sales strategy? That's a very good question. I found that uh, what still works to this day is an old book written in 1991 by (laughs) Miller Hyman called New Successful Large Account Management. The biggest mistake I see is a lot of service-based businesses trying to adopt an inbound strategy. And okay. there's, there's a lot of momentum in the marketplace about inbound machines and this digital marketing world wants yeah. uh, wants to drive people to a buy now button and funnels and nurturing. Yeah, kind of the HubSpot kind uh, of yeah, approach but, to but typically, you know, services are bespoke and they require a certain level of uh, consultative approach. And there's just an inherent amount of... Uh, outbound and massaging that needs to be done. A lot of probing and discovery and attaching outcomes to features. For instance, I heard you say that this was important to you. Well, if we were able to accomplish that by this, would that be helpful? And you just really don't get to do that in an inbound environment where it's a little bit, by nature, has to be a little bit more cookie cutter. So I think that they try to put a bespoke consultative approach through the lens of an inbound funnel business. And uh, the message just doesn't really resonate with the marketplace. And they lose a lot of opportunity because potential customers that say, that's not my problem. Because how can you potentially address all the problems on one landing page? So I I think that's one of the biggest challenges I see is they try to do too much. And they they end up, if you try to, if you try to say too much to a potential buyer, they just say that that's not me. Yeah. Is it the kind of the tyranny of choice? There's too, too many things to try to identify with and there you end up identifying with nothing. 
And the reason they do it, and I get it, I understand why, it seems like a far more predictable and less uh, expensive path. Well, if we just run ads to this landing page, we've got really good video, we're really good creative, a certain number are going to say yes and, and buy. Mm-hmm. I just think that that's all theoretical and it's not real. Yeah. So, so better to create a more of an outbound strategy of really targeting accounts, how to connect with those accounts, develop a relationship, develop a conversation, you know, move them through sort of levels of engagement, you know, to more of an outbound strategy than inbound strategy. I like, I like an outbound strategy a little bit better for most service businesses. Yeah. Any other mistakes that you typically see service companies make when it comes to either thinking about how they're going to scale the business from a sales mm-hmm. point of view, revenue point of view, or you know the techniques, tactics that they use? So even within an outbound strategy, Bruce, I see too much just like, uh, I guess it's breezing over a niche, right? So you get this really big customer and you're happy about it. And then we don't do enough... I guess the word I'm looking for here is we don't spend enough time saying, okay, we've got this account. Who are their competitors? How do we just Mm. do the same thing with other companies that do what they do? So they're they're on to, they just closed a big trucking account and now they're on to trying to get a pool maintenance company. It's like, no, 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 go own trucking. You (laughs) got got truck, just go own it now. Go find every trucking company and say, did you know we just closed company X because we do X, Y, and Z? We can do the same thing for you. And that's, that's the way to scale. Yeah. Now, how do you deal with, I, I know some clients get a little finicky about wanting to have sort of lock you up, <laughs> I guess. You know, if you're going to work business with them, like I don't want you to do business with other competitors or at least direct competitors. Any strategies that, that you've seen companies use to kind of get around that or manage that in a way that's that's going to be, you know, give them options, but also, you know, going to allow them to kind of land and manage accounts that they have? Well, well I think it's a little bit of a nuanced question. I would, I, if I had a customer that wanted to restrict my ability to yeah. grow, that's probably not a good customer for me. But I think, I mean, there's mm-hmm. there are ways in which you can, you can ask it, ask them, ask the customer on the front end, oh, look, we don't see this as a competitive threat. I always think in, in these instances, it's better to ask permission than forgiveness. But you know, I think you got to be really clear on what is the real threat to that one client? Is it valid? And is it worth keeping them at the expense of you know, potentially acquiring more market share. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I have. That's a really good question. It may be out of out of scope for me because I can't think of instances where I've had customers say you can't go work with. There's outside of you know real clear non compete issues. I haven't seen customers take a capitative approach on a service provider being able to grow and have a thriving business. Yeah, the couple of companies I, in, in my tech company, and then a couple of companies I've worked with. The one strategy I have found actually it's worked work reasonably well is particularly if you're a pre- premium priced service that it justifies the premium price. It says, hey, look, the only way we do this is if you're paying premium prices and you have to name, you have to name the companies and you only get a handful, <laughs> right? So you can't take a category. You can't say, hey, well, well, look, I'm working with real estate development companies. You can't just say, I'm not going to work with any other real estate development companies. But, you know, if you're willing to pay the premium price, I'll give you a list of three to five companies that you feel are like direct competitors for you and will 
we'll box those out. But I can go out to other ones, you know, to other geographies, you know, as long as it's, a, you know, they deal with slightly different markets. And the flip side of this, I always say is like you, part of the reason you want me working in these other places is that that's where we get best practices and that's where we get insights, right? And so while I don't break confidentiality with clients, there's oftentimes insights about how something works or where something is going that I can share between clients in a way that it helps everybody. There so you go. that's kind of a strategy that I've used in the past, particularly, like I said, particularly on the higher end premium price model. But yeah, I would agree. If you're if you're not a premium price and you work with lots of different clients, it probably is not the best client. If they're that worried about being that competitive with other folks, may not be the best client for you. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts, takeaways? I mean, I know you're you're working with lots of different businesses right now. The things that service-based companies can kind of keep in mind as they approach, you know, thinking about scaling their business and, and how they're going to approach sales and sales strategy. You know, I think the the last thing that I would want to caution leaders is this role of the VP of sales. And that's mm-hmm. that's really the essence of my craft and, and my consultancy is working side by side those leaders. Good VP of sales are not great salespeople. Okay. So just because you've got a rainmaker on your sales team, uh, and I see this all the time, they say, well, we're going to make Johnny, who's been you know, a real quota buster, we're going to turn him into VP of sales. I'm like, really? <laughs> so there, there are a lot of real measurable consequences to that. Okay. So now you're going to take your top producer out of a production role. The competencies and behavioral makeup of a good sales leader and that of a good sales rep are so conflicting that it's going to create so much chaos in your business, you might actually quit. And I'm talking to the CEO. <laughs> so good salespeople, they get the deal uh, done, okay? Yeah. And they tend to leave a wake of destruction behind them <laughs> for somebody else to clean up. And no, we so don't true. mind cleaning up that mess because... It just kind of we kind of see it as a um, well, it's just a consequence of of the way they work. You know, we always we just yeah. know that this rep's going to create messes. Yeah. If you promote that and sanctify it in your sales team, now yeah. you've got twelve people and their leader that are wreaking havoc. All yeah. the processes that we're trying to establish here, yeah. they're gone. They're never going to happen. So you're going to just burn so much mental energy trying to clean up the team. And good sales reps kind of live quarter to quarter. They don't have the ability to think very strategically over a long three to five year. They know how they're going to get there this year, but building out three and five year plans, they don't do it well. So the the soundbite here is the best sales leaders are not your best salespeople. And you've got to do the work to understand what it is that you want from that role because they have to do three things well manage the customers manage the business and then coach the team yeah and you've got to be able to identify that very quickly it's probably someone that is on your team that is at or near plan but is not someone that is um you know, 150, 200% plan year in and year out. Yeah, I agree. I've seen that so many times. You know, people take their best salesperson, they make them sales manager, and then everything everything goes down. You know, yeah. they spend the next much next six months cleaning up their decision. With, and, oh, and the other way true. that it manifests is, you know, companies that are trying to scale really quickly think that if they go hire this big, expensive VP oh, of sales that it's going to make it work. You don't yeah. need it yet. You know, you don't need Miss Dashboard who is going to spend all her day in Salesforce looking at the numbers every way that she possibly can you need an evangelist so you yeah. you need to hire people that are going to do the work and not sit back and measure what everybody else is doing so uh, you know you run the risk of bringing in too much firepower too early yeah 
No, the good good words of uh, wisdom here. Nigel, if people want to find out more about you, about the work you do, about your book, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, I think the book is probably the best way to start with me. You can get it anywhere books are sold, but I would tell you to go to therevenueharvest.com. If you buy it there, I'll save you $10 on where you, you know, any other place you'd get it. And then I write pretty consistently on nigelgreen.co. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff, articles, PDFs, everything from how to do a 90-day review to this whole notion of planning and assigning your plan down at the account level. You can find all that on, uh, on my site. Great. I will make sure that both of those links are in the show notes. Highly encourage everyone to go take advantage of the $10 off and then uh, yeah, check out your notes. Nigel writes a lot of great things. I've been reading a lot of his content and it's it's really helpful. It's practical. It's insightful. So I would encourage everyone to go check it out. Nigel, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Great topic for our audience and you know some really great insights and experiences that you had. So I really appreciate it. Bruce, the pleasure's on mine. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.